Hello, welcome to the Next Level Sunday interview. It's Tim, and I have got Terrell Starr with me. Terrell runs the Black Diplomat social media feed, and uh, we'll get into it on the podcast. I found him so interesting when I stumbled onto an Instagram as a Black American born in Detroit, has a crazy kind of life story, who learned Russian, went to the Peace Corps, moved to Eastern Europe, moved to Ukraine, was doing independent journalism there, and then the war started. And so I've been looking for a way to get him on here to both give us an update about life in Ukraine and also kind of talk about the interesting racial dynamic of, you know, thinking about his life in America and and the racial challenges he faced here and then going to Eastern Europe where he's like the only black person within 100,000 miles. Okay, maybe that's an overstatement, but you get the gist. And so he's got an interesting story, and this was the week to do it because... You know, Zelensky is in D.C. As we discussed on the Wednesday Next Level, there is, I think, very real concern that the United States support for our ally is about to run out because of the Republican Party, because of the nihilism, because of the MAGA nationalism, and, you know, because, unfortunately, the Republicans who to date have been actually good on this, the Mitch McConnells of the world, seems like they might have run out of political capital on their own side. I hope that's not the case. I really do. We hashed that all out on Wednesday. If you missed it, uh, go back and check the Wednesday Next Level. And so we get into a little bit with Terrell, but I'm mostly interested in his perspective, his personal journey, his experiences on the ground in Ukraine. I think you'll enjoy it. So up next, Terrell Starr, host of the Black Diplomats. But first, our friends at Acid Tongue. We'll see you guys later. Welcome to the Bulwark's Next Level Sunday interview. I'm Tim Miller, and I'm here today with Terrell Starr, uh, the author of the Black Diplomats newsletter. He's got Black Diplomats official on YouTube. You'll see him on all the social media accounts doing Black Diplomat stuff, an independent journalist who has been in Kiev and all over Ukraine, really, since the start of the war. And uh, Terrell, thanks for doing this, man. Oh, of course. I'm happy to be here. We've been talking for a minute via Twitter, and I'm finally here. <laughs> All right. I'm glad we could finally do it. So I'm going to give you the backstory here about how this happened. I was on Instagram. I guess it was maybe last winter, and somebody shared a post of a black guy in a massive coat walking through Kiev after, after, after a raid. It's, there's snow everywhere. And I think to myself, who in the fuck is this guy and what is he thinking? And so I would like to just start there. Like, who are you and what were you thinking? What are you doing over there? Oh, uh, yes, I am an independent journalist, but I've actually, I specialize in Eastern European politics. Um, my degree is Russian, East European, Eurasian studies. I also went to J school at the University of Illinois, but I've been focused on this region for more than 20 years. And so I started off by going to Russia when I was an undergrad and then I was accepted into Peace Corps. And I was in the country of Georgia where I witnessed the Rose Revolution then. And so I was always just pulled into the politics of Eastern Europe in particular. And I was and I honestly I was intrigued because when I went to Russia, I saw all these black people there. And, and like you, I thought, what the fuck are these people doing here? Right. I thought that I would be the only one. And so it, it took me on this intellectual sojourn of understanding how black people, you know, starting from Langston Hughes in the 1930s, going over there to, you know, with the other group of other black people who has socialist leanings, who are seeking a alternative to the Jim Crow 
South and reality of the United States, but also went deeper to understand how black bodies entered into the Russian empire, et cetera. And so that culminated into my own curiosity for myself to go on my own journey. And so when you saw me, that's the leg of that journey that you saw me on actually covering the war in Ukraine as yeah. it actually was happening. Yeah. What did you find out about the Russian history? What was the genesis of, of black folks ending up in Russia? Right. So the genesis of it was that um, there's a book, uh, it was written by Ashley Blakely. It focused on the history of blackness in Russia. And the history goes back to even, you know, through the Ottoman Empire, whereby black people who were enslaved through the Ottomans were given to Catherine the Great as gifts, right? So, so that's some of the earliest historical documentation of black people being uh, service and Catherine the Great's court, who Catherine the Great, by the way, you know, herself was definitely a villain and created a pale of settlement where she concentrated Jews, you know, in much of Eastern Europe and, and colonized Ukraine to a greater extent. But there were black people that were interspersed within that history. And then it went on into the Soviet Union, which is where you had the largest push because the Soviets very keenly, in my view, their big push was against Western imperialism in the continent of Africa. So they use it as a political play to get the continent of yeah. Africa and other oppressed peoples or black peoples to be on their side. Ironically, whether it was the Russian Empire, but more particularly the Soviets, they had their own hegemony. They had their own colonial policy. I mean, Siberia essentially is a is colonized territory and indigenous people murdered them just as black, just as American settlers uh, murdered and butchered indigenous people here in the United States. So is there, is, it was the pot calling the kettle black, but they played off of the, 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 the racism that was inflicted on black peoples across the world through Brussels and through Washington, D.C. And that led me to really understanding how these black people were reconciling these two colonial powers. But the difference is that one, was appealing to them from a national level in ways that the United States and in Western Europe did not. And that's what fascinated me so much. And I'm still wrestling with that dynamic today as I'm really working through my own book proposal to figure out how, how we can explain what's going on with so many of our global issues now today. Yeah, well, I want to go in a little bit more into your backstory because I think it's so fascinating. I've, I've since discovered since I saw you on Instagram, but uh, I, I want to just talk about the news a little bit first. So we're taping this on Wednesday afternoon. Zelensky was here last night. Before we get to Zelensky, um, you're actually back stateside for a couple months, but have recently been in Ukraine, obviously been there throughout the war. What is the state of play on the ground there, you know, from your time there last month and, and you know, from your sources and folks that you're talking to? Are people starting to feel a little bit disillusioned? Is there a sense that maybe some of the momentum is shifting towards the bad guys? How would you assess the state of play and how people are feeling there? Well, I was in Ukraine up until the first week of November and I'm returning in February. And so there's no disillusionment from what I've seen at all. And I've traveled across the entire country. In fact, there's more enthusiasm and their determination is, is entrenched and there's no returning back to it. This has been the most anti-Russia period since the end of the Cold War, essentially in Ukraine. And the politics of the Ukrainian parliament, very pro-Ukrainian. If you are a Russia sympathizer, you will have a very rough and bleak political career in the country right now. In fact, the counteroffensive is stalled, essentially. And so the Ukrainians really do not have the necessary manpower, the hardware, the attackums, the long-range missiles 
needed to strike into the southern region. You know, I'm talking about Kyrgyzstan, for example. A lot of people thought that the southern offensive would be like the counteroffensive that was taking place in the east with uh, Kharkiv, for example, which is a completely different set of circumstances. And so I find that people are still continuing to be resolute. There's a lot of concern about U.S. funding, right? But I just published a video story on my YouTube channel, Black Diplomats Official, where I was interviewing volunteers who were raising money, crowdsourcing money for Ukrainian soldiers, getting them flak jackets and winter clothes, for example. There was a, a guy who owns a famous perfume shop who, since February of last year, has given $250,000 of his own money from his shop earnings to the Ukrainian military. That's just one person. So when you ask me about what's the state of play on the ground, there's from the local population, and I bring up the local population because the civil society there is a large reason where they're in the competitive situation right now is incredibly resolute and there's no return, there's no talk, there's no attitude for peace talks. And peace talks is a very relative subjective term that we can get into it if you ask, but there's no dialogue about we're going to negotiate or we're going to seek land. It's all resolute. I want to some of those uh, charities, some of those folks you've been talking to, I'm going to get those links and, and put them yeah. in the description of this, this show if our, if our listeners and viewers want to support, because I know that they would like to. Um, mm -hmm. Our listenership is very unified on this issue. Uh, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. There has to be, though, and maybe this is a little bit more recent than in November, but a sense of frustration with what American politics, the view of us from them. I mean, you know, to date, we've, we've, you know, maybe not always been as quick as they've wanted in, in providing support um, when it comes to military support, financial support, whatever, various weaponry. But now, I mean, look, we're staring down the possibility of a total, a total collapse of support from America. Is that not raising anxieties over there? Yeah. Oh, anxiety is an understatement. No, they, pe people are incredibly concerned, but a lot of this anxiety Folks really don't understand the culture of American politics, essentially what's happening right now. And there is a, a few diplomats that I speak to every two weeks while I'm in Ukraine, and we just exchange notes. And it's all off record. I tell him what's going on from my perspective as an American who covers Ukrainian politics, and he tells me what's going on from the Ukrainian perspective. And so what was going on here, Tim, is that a very particular segment of the GOP, the Freedom Caucus, namely, is they're taking advantage of procedural steps in regards to power. And that's what happened with Matt Gates, you know, challenging McCarthy. You know, he's retiring soon. Right. Has a lot to do with it. And so none of these people have a Ukraine policy. They don't have a serious uh, foreign policy. What they have is a white nationalist policy. And Ukraine is being bastardized as a campaign talking point because it's not America first. And that's ultimately what this is about. And so you have a country like Ukraine where at the beginning of the war, where you would think that this country, and let's talk about the racial dynamics of it and why it, there is such an appeal towards really where this war captivated people. You have people who look like much of the American populace who are white, right? That, you know, you have children who've been bombed, who've been killed, who experienced incredible atrocities. I've witnessed it, you know, and I help people ferry across into the EU. So I have a very personal, intimate experience with this. What's happening is that in Ukraine, what I try to explain to them is that this has nothing to do with you. You know, it, 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 this this is not about supporting Ukraine because they don't give a fuck about Ukraine. It's about maintaining their power. And if you can look at Ukraine and say that money that's going to Ukraine ought to come here, then that's a good talking point, And it has nothing to do with the security of the Ukrainian people. 
Yeah, uh, we could go round and round about the bastardization of the GOP. We're going to be you're going to be uh, you know find a very friendly audience here on that front. Now, see this as an, I've been in this part of the world for twenty plus years, and I can't find a policy angle that makes sense. Right, and I mean either, and so, but to me, that is what's the concerning part. Like, if I was in Ukraine right now. I'd be in a panic about this, right? Like, I don't see how America can keep funding them to the degree that they need. And on top of that, you have the specter of possibly another Trump presidency. Has that sunk in with people? Like, how are they navigating this situation yes. given given like the abandonment <laughs> that is going to that is imminent from us likely there's a concern of what's going on in america they fundamentally are really puzzled by american culture once you get beyond these substantive conversations they're like they're literally they're saying it's real what the fuck right? And, and, right and and the reason why they're saying that is because they don't really understand how a country that they say, okay, this is the land of freedom and opportunity. How can you have someone like Donald Trump in office? Now, of course, we all know because we understand this country. They do not. And so a lot of their top diplomats, they go to the highest quality schools here in the United States. But unfortunately, they don't step outside of these predominantly white think tank spaces where they could get a glimpse. And and that's most diplomats, right? But especially Ukraine, Poland, all these Eastern European countries, they don't get that. And so that has a lot to do with the dirt of expertise coming from people of color who understand the totality of this country. And so that's a big thing. Now, another concern is, um, you know, let's go back to last night where there was this massive missile attack against Kiev in particular. And so around Kiev, there are roughly about a handful of, of Patriot missile defenses, you know, various defense systems that also come from the West, as, you know, come from Europe as well. Now, I, as somebody who lives in Kiev, you know, six months out of the year, I have heard those missile attacks. And I can tell you just by the sounds, if you hear explosions in the air, that's a good sign because you only have to worry about the br- debris. And it means that the missile systems are intercepting. The incoming. You worry about you, yeah, the incoming, yes. You worry about the booms because that means that those fuckers landing. Right. And so and you're worried about where exactly are they landing? And so I've woken up three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning to drone strikes. And, you know, they're running ones because they're loud as hell. The motors are loud. like you, you. You really get into a system in a cadence and really understand the type of, of weapon that's coming in your direction at hundreds of miles per hour. And so as the conversation around funding ending for Ukraine looms, people are worried that we may have to wake up to the possibility that the incoming come again is not going to be intercepted. And so that is an incredible right. fear because now we're just talking about Kiev and a lot of those missiles and some of those missiles come through. Now, just imagine if you're in Odessa, if you're in Kharkiv, if you're in Kherson, which was liberated in the most recent counteroffensive, a lot of these countries don't have the air defense systems to protect themselves. They're in much worse shape. And so there is an incredible fear about that. But I think we have to have another conversation about why is it that this support that we saw coming before and before and before is no longer happening. So is there definitely grave concerns about that? Yeah, I mean, going to the last night example about Kiev, I feel like in America, there was outside of the Steve Bannon bubble, you know, outside of the far right, alt right bubble, I, there was a lot of shock about the assault on Kiev, the initial assault on Kiev, right? Mm-hmm. I, I do think that right or wrong, I think that there was a sense here, you know, this is not our position at the bulwark, but I think there's a sense here that like, 
you know, among your casual Americans that there's a territorial dispute on the border blah, 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 of Ukraine and Russia is one thing, right? Like yeah, yeah. bombs going into Kiev, like that is an invasion, right? Like, like yeah. that is Russia and trying to invade and take over another country. That is fundamentally a different thing, uh, you know, from a public facing standpoint. The thing that worries me is that like that's starting to happen again. And it doesn't feel like the outrage is the same, right? We're not seeing the same backlash here in America that we saw initially. Like, are people in Ukraine going to eventually start to feel abandoned? And could like the momentum on this thing change very quickly is kind of what I worry about. It's not that they have concern about Western support turning on them. They're concerned about the apathy. Like They're keenly aware that over time, people get weary of the news cycle. So when I was there at the beginning of the war, and, you know, I was actually there months before the war started, and there was a lead up to this, right? And so what's important yeah. is that the way that Putin talked about Ukrainians, he talked about them like they're less than U Russians, right? You know, they're beneath them. Right. The way that I describe it is that he talks about Ukrainians like they're white trash. You know, he, he really, right. he, does, yeah. he, he does, he does, he denigrates them, right? And yeah. He has repeatedly said there is no Ukrainian society, no Ukrainian culture. I mean, it is as white nationalist, you know, it's as nationalist as you could possibly get, get the way that we would look at it, right? And yeah, so right. his whole thing is we want to wipe Ukrainian culture completely off the map. These are just a whole bunch of runaway hicks who really think that they are something more than what they are. They really just need to be an oblast of Russia. That is how he articulates that. And so there was an anger and a, and a brooding that, that percolated leading up to that point. And so when you saw the resistance that a lot of people were surprised by, a lot of it, in addition to the improvements of the Ukrainian military, it was sustained by the fact that this, this person is coming because he, he doesn't want us to exist as human beings, right? right. And so, they, so when you talk about we're fighting for our lives and our existence, that was literally true. Now, I think that people are definitely worried, you know, worried about the apathy. And here's why. Again, I think that when you see the images at the beginning of a war where the fighting was most intense and everyone was worried if Ukraine would even exist after that, the intrigue was, right. will Ukraine survive? And so that's not there anymore. And basically, they see that Ukraine, they don't, people don't really understand like what's happening right now because there's just a state of, Okay, the Russians are taking over Donetsk. They've taken over much of Luhansk. There's a little bit of Luhansk that's left, or they're taking over here. So it becomes this very wonky conversation that's being led by think tank people and military experts right. that talk to it's like each a other. Risk. Yeah, it's a gamer risk. Yeah. So, so, so the conversation became more the empathy left because the way that we talk about Ukraine is not empathetic. The way that we talk about Ukraine is like a chessboard. And so the, really the type of people that ought to be leading the charge in this is Joe Biden himself. And the way that he talks about it, he doesn't talk about it from a perspective of this is why the American people need to participate in the defense of Ukraine. And so he doesn't humanize it. It just becomes a think tank conversation that most of the American public don't feel that they have a personal connection to in the way that they were connecting to the images of Ukrainians fighting to defend themselves and then women and children and everyone else fighting for their lives. That's the major thing. There's a lack of humanity from all sides that's being lost in the communication, particularly, again, I, I criticize the White House for their for, for their dialogue because Mike Johnson, the, the House Speaker, 
I think he's intellectually disingenuous. But when he talks about the communication standpoint and what's your strategy, he is right about that. Yeah. Somebody that's been good, really good on the communication side of this is Zelensky. I'm wondering what your perspective was in being on the ground there. And the story <laughs> yeah. is kind of crazy, right? Like the guy, like, is an actor. And, and I think there were a lot of questions yeah. over there. He's up for this. And you're there before it starts. And so I'm just wondering, like, what did people think about him before the war started? Then as it started, you know, just kind of walk me through, like, the perception story of Zelensky. And I'd have to imagine when you're first on the ground, you're like, oh, shit, is this guy up for this? Oh, oh everybody thought, oh, shit. There was worry, definitely. They were like, yeah. does this guy have the skin to handle this? Because people thought that he was a one-term president, there was no forecast of Ukraine entering into the European Union or NATO. Now all of these things are on the table right now. And then there's conversation of a session talks with the European Union now in the next few days. However, at the beginning of the war, no one knew about the Ukrainian army and military. But, but with Zelensky, because of that acting experience, because of that TV persona, he is a master of communication. And I'm going to bring up somebody who I know you, maybe, you know, and definitely me, I know a lot of your audience won't, don't care for it at all. That's Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was somebody who was a former actor who understood. I love Reagan. Don't, don't, be, don't, be, don't be throwing me down. I love Ronnie. Okay. Yeah, yeah, all right. Ronnie. We're the never Trumpers over here. All right. Remember, remember where you're at. Remember what space you're in. <laughs> I hear you. But the thing about Ronald Reagan was that he was brilliant with symbolisms, right? You know, and, and, and I hate his policy, but he was excellent with symbolisms, one of the best to ever do it, right, in his own way. And Zelensky is also somebody who's very keen on symbolism. And, and you notice this now at the beginning of the war, he spoke pretty much in Ukrainian. And then now he's doing all these interviews in Russian. So even his way of communicating with the world has been incredible because he understands the human touch. In the way that he answers questions, he's very diplomatic, which is not something that we saw in him prior to this invasion or when he was running for office. We didn't know that. And sometimes the, the worst of circumstances tend to bring out the best of people or, or aspects yeah. of who they are. And so, you know, let's go back to his recent, his interview on Fox News. It's roughly a six-minute interview, right? But 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 there was one thing that, that was really important. He was asked basically uh, about the support for Ukraine. He said something that was really profound, which he said that it's a moral issue, Right. And I think this is going to really slip a lot of people's minds. He was very correct to say that this is a moral issue because it is, right? And I know right now what's dominating the headlines is um, Gaza, which I also think is a moral issue, right? But genocide is happening in Ukraine right now. Putin has verbally articulated and officials in the Russian government have articulated that Ukraine does not need to exist. And they talk about them in the most genocidal terms imaginable. And so Zelensky said that I've tried to tell the House Republicans, everyone, that this is a moral dilemma and that Putin really, you know, like to support us is essential, not only just to support Ukraine militarily, but just from a human being perspective. And he, he articulated that better than I think most politicians here right now. And you have to think, and I'll close out with this, you know, the thing about Biden, why, why it's so critical with him is that really without a Biden in office, there's no one, neither the Democrats nor Republicans have anyone with his type of statesmanship and experience in this region in particular. The last person who had his uh, type of regional commitment and political statesmanship expertise was John McCain. He's no longer there. Before that, we have to honestly go back to Reagan. 
in that regard, yeah, right? HW. Yeah, you can say HW, but then it was Reagan. And so you so this is a very rare type of, of, of situational expertise that's essential to really crystallize why it's important to support you. And I can go into my own technical reasons why why it's, um U.S. support uh, for, for, for that region is needed, primarily the fact that you, if as a NATO member country, it's not really, from a security standpoint, healthy to have an unstabilized country at your border. Whole another conversation. But I think that right now uh, with Zelensky, when he was also asked during the press conference with Biden about Trump was, hey, do you see think that support will end when Trump is in office? Uh, Zelensky diplomatically said, I've worked with both parties. I'll give you the answer that he won't say. It will end because Biden is the whip of NATO. He is the whip de facto of the European Union. He is the one that whips the other members into shape and to corral them to get around. You know, it's like herding cats and to corral them around support. When he is not in office, all that is gone. I agree with that. Well, one way to kind of get people to actually care about this not in the game of chessboard ways is to like tell these stories. And it's a cool thing about what you're doing. So I'm wondering, I, I mean, is there anything, you know, that has really stood out to you that kind of crystallized like what they're going through over there? <laughs> yeah. So my YouTube channel, which, you know, Black Diplomats Official, which it'll all be in the notes, at, you know, for, for the show. Every week I travel, just talk with local people and asking them, what is it like living here during the war? And so the culture in Ukraine is that there are people who raise money for particular military units that they know and trust because a lot of them have friends and cousins, sisters, what have you, that are in the military. Then they'll call and say, hey, we need this, that, and the third. Because for all the money that's being sent to Ukraine, it's still not enough to cover a lot of uh, essential needs for the military. And so you have right. a lot of crowdsourcing, millions of dollars in crowdsourcing that's taking place in Ukraine from everyday people, whether it's one dollar well it's ten dollars and so you go there and you see these people who were engineers they may have been gardeners and then now they're making flag jackets you know and or now they're making military underwear for soldiers things that they never thought that they would ever be doing or you have students who are taking time off not even to fight but to just volunteer and, and, and raise money or to create ways where they can bring drones into the country so that they can be converted for military use. They, so you so, so you have all those things. But also one anecdote that sticks out to me is um, I went to the city of Zaporizhia. And so you have Zaporizhia, which is the, the, the old blast, but Zaporizhia, you have the city. And everyone knows that's where the nuclear power plant is. And the Russians are currently occupying it. So- right. And I wanted to go there because it's just the power plant is a few hours away and the whole conversation is, will this blow up, right? Which it won't. That's a whole other thing. But basically, the intrigue is, what is it like to live near a power plant that everyone thinks is going to explode? So, you know, once I got into town, there were so many people who were saying, well, Terrell, we want, you know, we want to show you around and we want to show you, hey, this is what we're doing. And one cafe that I visited, it was named High Mars. Okay. And so she opened it up, you know, and High Mars, you know, is the, like, uh, is the it's weapon. The, yeah, the weapon is the weapon. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And so she named it High Mars at the start of the war. In my, imagine starting a business at the start of the war, right? And, 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 and so, and she, her thing is strategically was to say High Mars. And, her, and I asked her, why did you name it High Mars? She said, well, Thank you. So it just shows you the intensity of the commitment that someone would name their business after a Ukrainian weapon, right? And started during the war. 
And also, I was invited to a donut shop owner's shop. And they make some of the best donuts that I've ever tasted in all my life. They would put Krispy Kreme to shame, and they're healthier. And so, <laughs> and these are people who just invited me and just showing me, you know, their whole thing is, hey, fuck Russia. And they literally tell me that. And so, the tourism bureau in Zaporizhia invited me to their office. And his first word to me was Russia sucks. And then he just went into this larger conversation of the fact that, hey, we used to speak Russian. That was our first language. But now we're moving into Ukrainian. And we just want to tell you why we hate these people. And it, it was a very, and for me, just being uh, an American there, and they're talking to me about uh, how they feel like they've been dehumanized, just as a visual, right? You know, I'm I'm used as a black person who was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. And this is where a lot of my approach comes from, right? Born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, which is the largest black city in the United States, has been that way for more than 30 years. Also, I went to a historically black college at Philander Smith in Little Rock, Arkansas. So for the first 22 years of my life, I lived a very black American life. And so I know my whole history of, of oppression and discrimination very well. What was really illuminating to me was just the scene of this black guy with the history that I have and these people, Ukrainian people who, you know, by Western constructs of race are, you know, and just generally, you know, are white people, right? And so them talking about their oppression to me as a black person, there are definitely differences, but there are definitely a lot of similar strains there that I could personally appreciate and relate to, not only because my area of expertise, but also from a human perspective, it really opened up my eyes to the different types of oppression that exists in the world. And that trip to Zaporizhia, in each instance where these different people that I mentioned welcome me into their workspaces, their environments, this is how we are overcoming uh, this Russian colonialism oppression story. So that was just interspersed and their very welcoming greeting to me. And, and, and so it was really something that sits with me even to this day. And I'm happy, and this is really the first time that I've spoken to anyone about it, interestingly enough. Can I just, it's funny, I wanted to talk to Quinn Smith more about this. At the very end, I talked to, you know, Quinn Smith writes for The Atlantic. Uh, I wrote How the Word Has Passed, Black Guides writes, yeah. writes about kind of racial history and how we how we pass yeah. down stories about our racist past, mostly in America. And at the very end of our interview, I asked him about something that he's changed his perspective on. I mean, he said he was, he was doing some reporting on Korea and, and what was uh, happening in, in Korea. And he, and he kind of had a very American worldview mentally towards it. But as he was over there doing reporting, you know, he said it surprised him. It gave him a different view of like colonialism and race because was he was listening to Koreans, they were talking about Japanese colonial impression, right? Mm -hmm. And they, he mm -hmm. said they're using a lot of the same words that a lot of, you know, black folks use when they're talking about white people. They're identical. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and he's like, yeah. but there's no racial, he's like, there's not really a pigmentation construct there, right? He didn't say that word. I'm, I'm saying I'm putting my words in his mouth. But, but it's the same thing. And so it's interesting to hear you say that. And so anyway, I just kind of wonder, has that like changed your perspective on how integral race is to the issue of colonial? colonialism and oppression or has it my first thought was langston hughes very famous all-time great american writer uh he went there as a black man you know history of jim crow 
you know, and his family, their existence there, right? Uh, he went to the Soviet Union in the early 1930s. And that was during the famine where the uh, man-made famine took place in Ukraine. And so it was really interesting to understand from his perspective how he viewed race. And so I just it just gave me some historical framework to see what he was thinking. And I remember he went to a Central Asian country. I forgot the name of it. But basically, he went on buses and he said they have partition spaces during the Russian Empire, right, pre-1917. And so basically there was a space for Asian people, basically, that were in the back, and then there are other spaces for Russians. And so going back to what Clint Smith was saying, so even him in, in roughly 100 years ago, he saw this dynamic, right? And so he saw you know, the ways that race played there, right? Because the Russians, people like to say that race is an American construct, which is bullshit, Uh the scholarly use of race, Raza, began around the 1870s in Russia. So they definitely have their construct of race because that's how they helped colonialize their territory. So that want to right. add that tidbit fact there. But as for me, my reckoning with understanding race, and this is before I understood the terminologies of colonialism and imperialism. When I was in college, I wasn't thinking about that back then, right? This is, you know, right. you know 1990, I didn't have that frame of mind. And I wasn't thinking about hegemony, like those big fancy terms, right? <laughs> they matter now, right? But basically, what I, I didn't have those words, but what I do remember is when I was a Peace Corps volunteer, I was in Georgia, and what I learned was that people from the Caucasus, like from the southern mm-hmm. parts of, south of Russia, they're considered Caucasus people, and the Russians consider them black. They also consider Central Asians black. The Caucasians. Yeah, the Caucasians, <laughs> yeah. right, right, which is their original term, the Caucasian. We say yeah. Caucasian here in the United States, but it's actually not yeah. a, 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 no true or academic, right, to how we use it here. But basically, I was fascinated with these Georgians who were white people here in the United States, right? One guy was saying, well, Terrell, you know, we're black, you know, here. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. You know, like, I, you know, like I, I was like, come on, man, because I'm used to like, your hair ain't mine. You know what I'm saying? Your hair is not going out of your hair like they're going on my beard, right? And, 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 so, and so, I. But, but the thing is, is that I had to expand my own mind and my own intellect. Because, and, and the thing is, is that those very interpersonal experiences that I experienced, what Clint saw, it was very vital to understand that the world works like there are different types of oppression that work in ways that operate outside of our construct. And if you don't understand them, then you're not going to solve the larger problems that exist today. And so it's not enough to understand only Western hegemony, right? Which is military, political, economic control. This is a basic definition of right. And so, you know, I you know, there's Russian hegemony. Because remember, Russia covers about eleven time zones, something to that effect. You have, yeah. you know, post-World War II, right? You have Chinese hegemony because, you know, post, you know, pre-World War II is a very different thing. But post-World War II, you have a Chinese hegemony, right? And so my whole point of it is that, you know, and I lived in Georgia for going on three years because I go there every year, stay for about a month. But I, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer, I stayed for more than two years. But I was surrounded by who I would be considered white people. They had their own regional oppression story, in which they were racialized. And the same thing is true for Armenians and Azeri people, right? And so just from a purely, you know, ethnic standpoint, they are racialized as the black people 
by the predominant hegemony in their region, which is Russia. And it really helped me to understand how the world was really constructed. And, and this now bringing it on home. So growing up in Detroit, I understood my own hegemony. And, you know, we call it Jim Crow. We call it redlining. We call it all those things. So why was I poor? I grew up in the hood. You know, why did I come from a place where both my uncles sold crack? Like, that was my whole background. My, my whole experience with diplomacy started from my watching my uncle sell drugs. And so I understood very well the confines of, of where I was. But in reality, this comes down to urban planning. Every neighborhood, every house, every business, every park, every school is planned through urban planning. And foreign policy is just a globalized extension of that. Many of these countries in these conflicts, whether it's Israel, whether it's, you know, when you think about South Sudan, where all these places are carved up. And it's a group of very powerful white people who are usually at the table making the decisions of how the rest of us live. And so when you think about it like that, you know, or, or you know, in the case of China, China with, with the South China Sea, like you have these very powerful figures with their own regional homogenous territories that are deciding how we live. And if you break it down, it's nothing more than a bigger version of urban planning. And there's just written, there's racism embedded in it. There's sexism embedded in it. There's greed, there's kleptocracy, all of that stuff matters. And so my whole life and the way that I look at the world comes from me being this black kid that grew up in the hood. And quite frankly, my experiences are, are, experiences like mine, and I don't know what Clint's background is, but I'm pretty sure he could relate to it. So, so even intellectually, people like Mark Lamont Hill, who, you know, who, who does a lot of incredible work on Palestine, is that we are living in a space where the oppression that we're experiencing as individuals is not that much different from how it's carved out for the rest of the world. And if you watch the series Power, you know, you have James St. Patrick, who is the drug lord, who tried to go straight with his... his, his. I, don't, I don't know. Is this, a, is this a fictional series or documentary? I don't know. I'm not familiar with it. Just 30 seconds. So basically, the whole point of it is that Tariq, his father was a drug dealer, um, and it's, it's on the network stars. And so Tariq is picking up his father's drug business, and he gets a job as an intern working at a hedge fund that runs a Ponzi scheme. But the hedge fund executive kind of lets him do it because he's profiting off of it one way or the other. And so the whole point of the story is that there gets to a point where their worlds collide and they clash and they're out of conflict. But Tariq has to jump on him because he knows that this executive is running a Ponzi scheme. This is going to crystallize everything I just told you. The white executive who comes from family wealth, he looks at Tariq, this 19-year-old kid who goes to the Ivy League in New York. He says... Okay, you think you got me, huh? You 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 think you think that you got me. You must think this is the hood, don't you? And let me tell you, it is not. And then Tariq looks him dead in the eye and says, "My nigga, the whole world is the hood. You you hear me? Shut the fuck up." And so that that, that so so basically <laughs> he he basically is is crystallizing everything I said. Like the whole world is the hood. And so that's as I'm saying, like the racist urban planning that I experienced and, and Tariq's character experience growing up is a larger manifestation of this criminal criminal enterprise that's carved up by white people. It's just that the world in which Tariq lives in is criminalized and the ones that is really destroying the world and wreaking havoc is not. Yeah. 
I'm curious to based on that experience. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I wanted to talk about this anyway. Is um, just more on the personal level rather than the geopolitical yeah. level. Like, because um, uh, I was I was reading your uh, something you wrote mm-hmm. uh, a long time ago about BuzzFeed about your upbringing. And, and one of the anecdotes in there, you're talking about your uncles, you said are drug dealers, but you're also talking about just the violence in the neighborhood. Yeah. And like, you know, there are times coming home from school, there's gunshots and there's stuff you have to worry about. But then like, also like you got to live your life day in, day out. You got to survive while this trauma is going around. And I'm just kind of wondering, A, did that like prepare you, like give perspective at all for life in Ukraine? And, and how do you kind of compare and contrast that, right? Because there are some parallels, right? You know, I don't want to say Detroit is Kiev, but like <laughs> growing up in Detroit where you got to worry about gunshots or living in an apartment where you got to listen for whether it's a boom or a crash, like there are definitely some parallels there. So I just wonder like on a personal level, like how you process that and how like kind of the people in Kiev process that well well, thank you very much for asking me that question i'm always open to talk about the whole mental health journey because we're often it's a shameful conversation for a lot of people because they don't want to talk about their vulnerabilities and i'm happy to do so because i feel like it can help someone else growing up where i grew up on the west side of detroit during the 1980s both my uncles started selling drugs and one of them eventually became addicted to them and died of a drug overdose in rough roughly around 2003 2004 I think. And so basically, I saw people whose lives, quite frankly, were a tragedy. You know, in my neighborhood, the community, there was a community built there that I grew accustomed to that I actually liked. It, what, what was really rough about it was that when they, when the drug dealers would turn on each other and conflict would arise, I also have to acknowledge the, the lives that were ruined through drug, you know, through the excessive uh, drug use by people during the crack era claimed a lot of lives, including a lot of people I know, my family included. And so I also had a very strained relationship with that uncle Cricket, who was addicted to crack. So what does that look like? That looks like our house being raided by other drug dealers and having guns when I'm 11 years old, 10 years old, stuck in my face. I remember the, the 357 Magnum that was stuck in my face. Um, even as a 43-year-old man, you know, just decades later, I still remember that scene. I remember my uncles being beaten to a bloody pulp. Um, just the sheer violence, just in the aftermath for a few days, walking down the hallway past the smears of blood that was beaten out of your family member in the very graphic scenes that I saw. And just going to school and my classmates hearing about it and laughing at me. And they weren't laughing at me to be cruel. They were laughing at me to say, y'all, somebody got to jump on y'all, right? And so there was this whole thing, in the, you know, being in the... But but as a 43-year-old man, I'm not upset with them because that was our lives, right. right? Somebody got to jump on you, you know? And then also, my uncle's drug addiction made him a very violent person. And so there were situations where... There were, there were three instances where one of my uncles died. And then I had to be the man of the house. I was given a, a gun when I was 12 years old and I almost killed my uncle three times because of his drug addiction. And I was very lucky that I didn't pull the trigger in one instance someone pulled the gun out of my hand. And so as opposed to being on this show talking to you. Because he was like, what, going to hurt your mom or something? So he was on one of his binges and then he said he was going to we thought that he was going to go down to the basement and get a gun and shoot us. So I was going to beat him to the punch. So I grabbed my grandmother's 22 and then I pointed at him. And then when he came up, somebody pulled the gun out just 
right before that was going to pull the trigger. And so I had a lot of this suppressed anger and fear. It made me a very insular person. So basically, when I was about 32 or 33 years old, I was in a work environment that was extremely, there was a very abusive and very bullying environment. And so the intellectual side of me that got out of the hood was like, I don't want to put hands on this dude, right? Because it was, you know, from where I'm from, when someone says you violating, you know, basically it's like you're being disrespectful, but if you're violating, like you're going past, there are certain limits that you're going past, like you're violating, right? And so from the block, if someone says that you violate, then your ears need to perk up because it's something going on. It's like somebody from my hood saying, oh, my mama, right? It's like, it's it's big, like it's a big fucking thing. Like it's a problem's going to start, right? And so for me, these people at my job shook me to that level. I mean, there was a whole bunch of little things that they were doing to make my life stressful. And so, it, but, but it really evoked all of this childhood trauma that, I couldn't take it out on them because I would lose my job. I would get into jail. So I said, fuck it, I'm going to just shoot myself. And so I made out this elaborate plan to do it. But then something, somebody reached out to me and then I told them what was going on. And then I got the help that I need. So I went to therapy for two years. I was on medication for one of them. And I bring this all up to say that when I talk about foreign policy, I feel like my life experience from a personal standpoint I understand how bad life can be. And I and, and and just as I was that kid that could have shot my uncle, killed him, I could have been in prison, come out with a wreck as a right. felon, right? So a lot of people who are listening to this podcast are not going to look at me and say, oh, Terrell is the type of dude that could have shot his uncle. But when things get that bad, when your life is that, that's like, I am living proof that it can get that bad. And that environment can create People, but I show you that once you create circumstances and environments where that doesn't happen, and that's why I talk about my uncle in therapy. I learned how to forgive my uncle. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the toughest steps that I had to take in my life. It was one of the most important decisions that I made. And because I was able to forgive my uncle, I was able to be free as a person and free as a thinker. And that forgiveness of my uncle helped me to quite frankly, understand the rest of the world because that's why I think, okay, why is the world carved out the way that it is? This comes down to abuse. It comes down to power. And why do people do the worst and heinous things? And as somebody who grew up in an environment where I did the most heinous thing that you can do is kill a family, like almost killed a family member, I get it. And so it put a lot of empathy in my heart from a personal perspective, why I can go to Ukraine and cover this war and call Putin a genocidal terrorist. That's why I can go to Palestine, because I, I was in Palestine this year and have the same politic about being morally consistent. And I may not have been in the situation where a Palestinian child is, but I know what it's like when you feel like you're we are at rock bottom and you feel like the best way you could defend yourself is pick up a weapon and kill someone. I, I get it. And so I feel like this type of perspective is needed to understand what's going on in America, to understand what's going on in the world, because this whole punitive approach, like I, I know what it's like to to want to kill somebody. I've been there as a kid, as a child, yeah. as a child, you know, and so that's why it, it just informs my way, my politics in so many ways, man.
And I appreciate you sharing that story. Yeah. And I do wonder, you know, when I think about it, look, I mean, you come out, look, at mental health's a journey, life's a journey, we all deal with all this stuff. Yeah. So I guess there's no coming out. But in some yeah. sense, you've come out the other side, right? In some yeah. sense, yeah. you've come out the other side. There's no coming out permanently. But in some sense, you've come out yeah, the right. other side. And, you know, you had therapy and, and you dealt with, you dealt with violence, like you dealt with people coming after your family, you dealt with, I mean, there's an element of a family feud to the Ukrainian thing, not to stretch the metaphor, but like when you're living over there, you're dealing with people that have death now in their life, that have death, that have had experienced that, people that died too young in their family. And you talked about that, you know, um, kids that died. And so I just wonder, have like, has that journey, have you been able to leverage that at all? Kind of like building bonds and like relationship building with people and, and, and I don't know, you know, I'm kind of curious about that. Absolutely. I'm often the first black person that a lot of these folks have ever talked to in a meaningful way. I'm right. not just talking about taking a photo. Hey, let's take a selfie together. Yay. No, I'm just talking. <laughs> Do you get selfies down. over there? It's like, oh, wait, I want a selfie with the black guy that I can put on Facebook. Is it that? Is so, it- so, yeah. So, so it's converted. So it's switched, right? So, yeah, yeah, yes. So for different reasons, right? So before the war, I got them because people thought I was curious. And that coat that you saw me on, I don't, was it a red coat that you saw me on on this television show? I, I don't remember. I, was, I, I just, I remember being like, that dude is standing out. That's all I, that's all I remember. Okay. Oh, oh, okay. I, I got you. But at any rate, I had this red coat on with a white fur kind yeah, of Yeah, that was it. That was it. That was it. People, okay, but, okay, but a lot of the kids thought I was Father Frost. They thought I was Santa Claus. Oh, okay. And so they would run up to me and take photos. So you saw, I'm like, okay, I think it's kind of cool that these little kids in Ukraine think, think that a black man can be Santa. Great, yeah. right? So <laughs> we're advancing in the world. And so there were people who were so convinced that I was Santa that they actually took photos. They wanted to pay me. Yeah. You know, they thought I was actually working, right? Yeah. And, and, and this was in the desk, I remember, you know, everywhere, right? And so, but before... It was curiosity, but now they recognize the work that I do. Say, hey, I know who you yeah. are. And so that happens in New York and other places around the United States where I go. And so at least once a month, someone will say, hey, I, or maybe twice, say, hey, I know who you are. Can I take a photo? So that happens. So it's for different reasons now. Anyway, I'm sorry. I, I interrupted. You were saying, though, that a lot of times you're the first black person they've had a meaningful conversation with. When we talk to each other, they also ask me about race. They say, Terrell, is it really are there still problems in the United States with race? And one story that I'll tell you that'll kind of crystallize everything is that I was in the mountains in Ukraine, Western Ukraine, the Carpathian Mountains, and I was with a guy, uh, Volodymyr, one of my favorite places to go. He has a cabin there that he rents out, and I go there and I stay at least once a month, uh, at least a month while I'm there. And we were hiking a mountain, and we were, and so just to give you the scene, there were blueberry. Uh, patches surrounding us as we went up to the summit uh, of this mountain. And then, you know, there are Roma people around too that were doing seasonal work. Just to give you the whole scene, it was just a bright, sunny day in the Carpathian Mountains in Ukraine. A black guy and this Ukrainian dude walking, just casually walking, right? And then he looks at me, you know, he's kind of looking around, just searching in his mind, trying to figure out how to communicate with me. Now, mind you, we were speaking in Russian. And so, my Russian is not completely fluent at all, but like I can communicate. And so he said, well, Terrell, I've been, re-, and this was, I forgot what year it was, I think 2020. And so he said, well, Terrell, I, I was doing a lot of reading about Charlottesville. Can you explain to me why is it that these people decided to commit this really terrible act of violence? Like, I'm just, he said, I don't understand it. And so I explained it to him. And he said, oh, these people are terrorists. I said, yes, yes. He said, these people are terrorists. Yes, yeah. He's like, oh, they're like the people in Donetsk and 
Luhansk. These are people who are turning on their country. And I'm like, wow. And, and, you know, and this is a very empathetic person, period, right? And, you know, and these people, you know, they're regional folks, they're farmers, they do this type of thing, right? But um, for him and, you know, and me to have that conversation with each other where we were having it, right? Because we weren't in the capital. We are far away from any regional capital, by the way. You know, and for us to have that conversation of understanding, to me, was very important. And, now, and the only thing that's unfortunate about it is that Ukrainians don't have more conversations with people at that level because usually it's some guy like Austin Lloyd coming in at some high level diplomacy. And, you know, he's not going to talk about that. And so I just common people like people like myself who really understand this country. And I think that was a really bonding moment because I appreciate what's going on in Ukraine. I understand their humanity. But he took time to understand mine. And now there are some times when the conversations go left. And now I see myself as a cultural diplomat, whereby if something pisses me off and makes me angry, I have to hold back. And, I, and I've done a lot of that. Sometimes it's difficult. And sometimes I do lose my, cool, my, my patience um, because you'll be surprised at the type of shit that people ask me and say to me. But on the most 90% of the time, I maintain my cool when things go left. And one example of that would be this woman who I wrote a story about. I was telling her about racism in America, and she said I was over, well, you're making too much of a big deal of it. And I said, well, I'm kind of annoyed that this Ukrainian person would come over to my country and tell me that I'm overblowing racism that I experienced, right? But what I had to explain to her was that I said, look, you went to school in New York and and Washington, D.C., which has two of the largest black populations as far as cities in the entire country. And you don't have one black friend. The person that you have any significant conversation with is me. Detroit, New York has two million black people. That's the highest number of black people in any city in the country. Washington, D.C. is about 45, 50% black. You don't know one black person in any meaningful way. And I said, look, let's just, let's, let's just call this person Olga. Olga, when you came over to my country, you became a white woman. All this regional oppression, all that stuff is very real. But once you brought your blue-eyed, blonde ass to my country, <laughs> you became a white woman and started doing caring shit. I've told her that. Like she, and I think the one, she was surprised by the, the blunt nature of it, but she really pissed me off. And I felt like I was, that was relatively diplomatic to how she was, the, you know, the racist shit that she was saying. And then she looked at me and said, well, you know what? I guess you're right. I'm like, yeah, I'm right. You know, now what's really ironic about this, when I see this person, they say, well, Terrell, I see their this person's daughter. They said, "Well, hey, this is Uncle Terrell." I'm like, "Okay, lady, whatever." But you know, like, but I mean, it's a nice person. I like, yeah. but my point is that as a black person who has any type of consciousness about who they are as a person, I have these conversations several times a month. Yeah, and sometimes they go left, and sometimes they're productive. But at least twice a month, with a Ukrainian, with a Polish person, with whoever, I, I have these conversations. But that's the life of what it's like to be a black person who lives in this part of the world. It's definitely noticeable. I'll tell you that. Uh, you're definitely drawing attention to it. Sometimes it might go left, and I think that's a good thing. And, and I wouldn't change for anything in the world. I love it. I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing this. I love this country. I, I love Ukraine. I, I, I want to be on the front lines of its liberation, whether that means just doing what I'm doing, talking to you, Tim, 
and really getting getting people to understand what's going on, but bringing some moral consistency to the conversation expertise and also the human element that makes me the communicator that I am. And I'm just really thankful that you brought me on the show to talk about this because I love Ukraine and I, I love the country and I want to do everything I can. And I feel like talking to you about this is a part of that work. Oh, man, I appreciate that. Well, it's Black Diplomats. We're going to elevate it. I'm nervous about what's coming next year, but I'm happy you got yeah. people like you out there and all the folks in Ukraine on the front lines. I'm going to get some advice from you on, on kind of what links to put in here, but we're going to give people, I know we got a lot of folks who want to support uh, the people of Ukraine and the oppression that they're dealing with, the invasion that they're dealing with. I want to appreciate, thank you for taking the time to do this. We'll be monitoring you uh, when you get back out there in February. So Godspeed to you, my man. I appreciate it. No doubt. All right. See you.